Hi! Welcome to the CGOE Sports Show Podcast, a Hall of Fame episode. The 2019 class of the Manitoba Curling Hall of Fame. We'll talk about that with Resby Coots, the 2019 Baseball Hall of Fame. Who's going to Cooperstown? We'll break it down with Jamie Bettens of the Manitoba Junior Baseball League. And a movie that a lot of people have in their sports movie Hall of Fame, Rudy. I'm not sure I'd put it there. Why? Listen, Jeff Braun and I will review it in the replay booth. That's all on the podcast. Baseball Hall of Fame has announced the 2019 class. Roy Halladay, Mariana Rivera, Mike Mussina, and Edgar Martinez. So to talk about this, break it down. We're joined by Jamie Bettens, the president of the Manitoba Junior Baseball League in Las Vegas for a trade show. And uh, Jamie, good evening and welcome on the show. Thank you again. Always a pleasure to be here with you guys. So, Jamie, we'll start with Roy Halladay because this is Canada and he was really the heart and soul of the Blue Jays for well over a decade. What did Roy Halladay mean to baseball in this country? I I think he would be on the Mount Rushmore of baseball in Canada with respect to former or major league baseball players. There's a lot of influential people such as Greg Hamilton, the director of national teams programs. And there's, there's so many great coaches out there, but from a player perspective, Roy Halladay, Larry Walker, you know, Carlos Delgado, you know, maybe even Dennis Martinez and, you know, Gary Carter, some of those Expos guys. And I'm sure that you could go back, but if there was a Mount Rushmore, Roy Halladay would be on it. And it was kind of unfortunate, you know, watching the Jays for all those years, kind of feeling helpless. There's this ace pitcher who is just so good, so fun to watch because you know that a Roy Halladay starts only going to be about two hours and 10 minutes long, but he just didn't have a lot of help on those teams. Not, not really, but at the same time, you know, you have to really look at Roy Halladay's career to understand what the Blue Jays did for him as well, sending him back down to the minors when he was first called up as a top prospect. And he almost had to be rebuilt and, and make his way back. And I think that really says a lot for his loyalty to the Blue Jays for such a long time when many others may have said, hey, move me to a contender. He stayed. He helped build it into something and really left that legacy. And, and, and that's why, you know, Roy is, is obviously one of my favorite players of all time. And to get in on the first ballot as well, posthumously too. And he's going to be somebody, one of the rare players him right now and it's just Roberto Alomar to go in with a Blue Jays cap into the Hall of Fame Absolutely. Um, you know when we talk about Ron Mushmore you know apologies to Roberto Alomar because he's obviously there too but when those kind of players that aren't Canadian you know come to our country understand the magnitude of them being on Canada's team and, and the support behind it embrace it and become a part of the culture be part of the family uh, you you can't say enough about those kind of players because as we see in sports, they just they're just so hard to come by these days. You mentioned Larry Walker. Before we get to the other inductees, received fifty four percent of the vote to make it into the Hall of Fame. So he's got some work to go with just one year left on his ballot. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? Without question. I have no idea why he hasn't gone in yet. Um, I'm not sure if it's because he played in Colorado and they somehow hold those, some of those numbers against him, but what he did, his body of work and, you know, we're in the day of Twitter. And, and if you just see some of the, the Twitter accounts out there that publish the stats and the things that he's accomplished versus other hall of famers, it's, it's really 
it, it shouldn't be a decision. I really hope he gets in, and he would be one of the uh, really sad omissions if he doesn't get in next year. I'm, I'm certainly pulling for him. Next year's class isn't as loaded. Jarek Jeter, the only obvious first balloter next year. But I did, like you mentioned, see a tweet today that basically showed the stats of Edgar Martinez and Larry Walker side by side, and they're basically the same. And today, Martinez getting in in his final year, it must be said, his 10th and final try, and primarily as a DH. And this is the distinction. Larry Walker did not play DH. Edgar Martinez, one of the first players really to get in, playing DH primarily through a lot of his career. Should the DH part be held against future players down the road? You know, so long as they have it as a a viable position, it's not in both leagues. Um, I can't see how you could, you know, slant anybody for doing what they do. I mean, and Edgar Martinez was an MVP, uh, and the fact that he could do it as a DH and still carry a team uh, speaks a lot for what he could do as far as offensive production. Um, you know, I had to have a first-hand opportunity to see some of the things he used to do, and you know, even before batting practice, Edgar Martinez used to uh, wouldn't even start in the cage until he would foul balls off into each dugout outside of the cage. He was just so good at that hand-eye coordination and, and just some of the things he did. So, you know, being able to personally see what he could do with a bat, uh, I fully understand how he got in. And he played his entire career, and it was a very long career, in one place, the Seattle Mariners. And there's a certain, you know, appeal to that if you're a baseball purist, someone staying in one spot their whole career. I, I think that is exactly what probably led to getting a lot of the... the uh, lack of a better term, kind of the older or the aging vote. Um, there, there's a loyalty there, and I think there's a loyalty in voting because of that as well. Mike Mussina uh, gets in as well as a pitcher. He played, uh, for almost split his career between Baltimore and the Yankees, finishes with 270 wins. Uh, a deserving spot for him in the hall? 100%. Um, when you think of his body of work and the fact that he did it in the American League East, you know, everybody talks about how tough different divisions are but when you do it for those teams and against those teams year in year out um, he's just a bit of an under the radar guy because he wasn't a guy that was always in the media he was he was often overlooked in fact Cito Gaston overlooked him at the all-star game one time and, and they still talk about that and joke around about that but um, you know those those are different different circumstances but he was a guy similar to Roy Halladay that just went about his business, and uh, y- you certainly have to root for a guy like Messina and, and congratulate him on what he got today. And finally, the most obvious kind of slam dunk vote of all time is closer Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer of all time. There's no arguably about it. And he is the first unanimous player elected into the Hall of Fame. Does that speak more to his ability or the stodginess and self-importance of writers over the years to leave great players off their ballot to make a point? You know, I I don't think the writers would ever have that mass ability to say, let's put in this guy as that first guy or anything like that, because it is a bit of a blind vote to a certain extent. But, um, you know, if there was a a pitcher in the dictionary behind first ballot, you know, 100% Hall of Famer, it's it, there's so many that are deserving of it, but to go in with Mariana Rivera, I don't think anybody's going to question that um, for what he did again, American league East with only really one pitch. And uh, <laughs> I saw uh, a clip earlier about uh, them kind of joking around Louisville slugger or some of the bat companies should have been paying him for the amount of bats that he broke over his career. And he actually laughed back and said, yeah, I, I should have, I wish somebody would, 
would, would have uh, counted how many because I'd love to know that number. Mariana Rivera, class act, uh, the Sandman, always got it done. And uh, again, when you're looking at the dictionary definition of closer, Mariana Rivera has to come to mind first. And his postseason numbers especially, he had 42 saves in 16 years, 141 innings pitched. He had 11 earned runs allowed in 141 postseason innings. It's in, it's insane. Staggering, staggering numbers. And uh, you don't get that without hard work, dedication, and, and just being a true student of the game. And uh, again, everybody knew Mo. Um, I don't know. I've yet to hear, you know, a real bad word about him aside from the fact that, you know, he shattered a lot of bats and broke a lot of hearts. And two, you know, this is part of the Yankees lore is that they were a part of so many World Series and deep playoff runs that two of the, you know, defining moments in two different franchises, the Arizona walk-off win in 2001 and the comeback by Boston in 2004 were both off of Mariano Rivera just kind of adds to the lore of both of those franchises because of how good Rivera is. Yeah, those those players and those teams will certainly have more to their story to tell uh, when they reminisce on those because they got it off of the absolute best. And that goes to show you uh, how much of a game of humility baseball is and, and how much of a game of failure it is. Uh, you know, they talk about the best hitters you know, failing 70% of the time. And, and uh, you know, we see the rotating door for closers in, in the game today. And the fact that he could do what he did at such a high level for so long with very few trip-ups along the way, um, again, 100% first ballot Hall of Famer and, and hats off to him. Before I let you go, Jamie, let's examine the players who did not get in, namely players like Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, in their seventh year of eligibility there's the obvious tainting of steroid use, even though neither has ever admitted it. It's widely speculated. Will they and should they get in the Hall of Fame? Very, very good question. Uh, will they? Uh, obviously, that's in the hands of the judges. Um, the body of work over the time frame dictates the numbers are there. But again, uh, on a personal level, if it was me with a vote, I would have a hard time voting somebody in against somebody like Larry Walker, who never had that enter the conversation and year in, year out, put in the the sweat equity to get to be the kind of player that he is. When you think of it on that level, uh, I would have a hard time voting for those players. That's not to say I don't think they're particularly deserving, but I would have a hard time voting for them against somebody who I know, uh, you know, put in that uh, that sweat equity and, and, and earned their career. Both of them right around 59%, Larry Walker at 55%. So it, their numbers weren't rising, uh, Walker's is, but Clemens and Bonds did not. So it's possible that they might fall short. Kurt Schilling at 61% in his sixth year of eligibility. Schilling's a guy that should make it in, right? I'd like to think so. Um, you know, everybody remembers the bloody sock. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Kurt Schilling was an absolute workhorse. He was a guy who was, you know, good for 200 innings uh, almost year in, year out. And if you look at the, the starting pitchers this day and age, um, managers are happy if they get through the sixth inning. Uh, Kurt Schilling was a guy who was just known for complete games. Him and Roy Halladay were kind of the last uh, frontier of, of starting pitchers that were known as kind of the horses that were willing to give you that day in, day out with the exception of a, maybe a knuckleballer in this in this day and age, not many guys are you know logging the innings that they did and having the the resume too. Kurt Schilling, uh, you know, did a lot for the Phillies, brought them to the to the cusp against the Blue Jays, and then they obviously his body work with the Red Sox 
speaks for itself as well. All right, Jamie, as always, appreciate you taking time to offer some insight and uh, have fun in Vegas. <laughs> I would like to, but I'm at a trade show, so it's well, uh, work, work, work. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Every other Tuesday, Jeff Braun and I watch an old sports movie. We review it. What's it going to be this week? Well, since this is the last edition of the replay booth before the Super Bowl, we thought we'd pick a sports movie, and we went with Rudy. I was told that this movie would make me cry when I told people that I was going to watch Rudy. Yep. It did not. It didn't? No. It did for me at one point. We'll get into that a little bit later. I, I I thought it would as well, but no, it really didn't. As much as I thought. Right. So they never really establish where and when this is taking place. I had to look it up. It was in Joliet, Illinois, and the high school on the Rudy sweater says it. But it's about a, a kid and a huge family. They love Notre Dame. They're not far from Notre Dame. And they're, you know, working class. The kid is originally portrayed as dumb, but it turns out he has dyslexia. He wants to play football at Notre Dame, but everyone's always saying no. And then they show him a little bit older in high school and he can't go because his grades suck. And now he's going to the mill and then his best friend dies in a workplace accident. The first 20 minutes of this film is super sad. <laughs> it's true. And 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 it does, oh, to be fair, it's like the early 70s. Is not, not when he's a kid, but when he's a grown-up, that's the early 70s. Yeah. And his eventual matriculation at Notre Dame the is cl- The climax the of the film is like 1977. Yeah, something like that. So. Uh, yeah, it was, it was weird. And like that, uh, this kid's only goal in life is to play football for Notre Dame. I didn't... I, I know that people get whatever about the colleges they went to, but no one in his family went to Notre Dame. Right. Uh, so I, I was just like, why are they so obsessed with this place? It's a working class family in a small town. None of them go to college, and then he ends up getting... There are like 50 colleges around Chicago that they could There's a lot, from? yeah, but they don't have a lot of money. Well, so why do they care about college sports, period? Why aren't they just like go Bears? Well, because in college sports, football especially, is enormous in the States, regardless of if you've went to a school really? or not. Okay. It's geographical in many ways. So after his best friend dies, he decides he's going to do it. He's going to go to Notre Dame. Yeah. So he shows up in like the middle of the night on a Greyhound. Talks, just shows up at the Talks university. to a priest, gets into a junior college, tries to get grades. Eventually, and after helping out with some grounds crew at Notre Dame, he after a couple years of trying, gets into Notre Dame. Honestly, his ambition, some call it inspirational. I call it borderline obsessive and obnoxious. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no. I was annoyed. Me too. I, I I thought several times, like, God, I'm glad I didn't have to go to school with Rudy. Exactly. <laughs> and when he's in the locker room doing the speech. We're going to go inside. We're going to go outside, inside and outside. We're going to get him on the run, boys. Once we get him on the run, we're going to keep him on the run. And then we're going to go, 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 go. And we're not going to stop until we get across that goal line fortune smirks and i'm thinking oh shut up help him out yeah uh, here's what i didn't get uh he's on the grounds crew and that was at the at their stadium yeah, yeah. and he couldn't get tickets to the game though you know what i mean he was still outside trying to get in with his ten dollars in that amazing shot of both inside and outside well, the that stadium. starts from the ground and pans yeah up. and into a stadium i guess they just showed up on game day or whatever and yeah they did it's like we got three hours to get this shot or whatever but that was i was like how if he's on the ground crew, how can he not just walk into that stadium whenever he feels like it? It's amazing how many people say no to him. And Especially since he was living there. Yeah, it's <laughs> amazing. And this kid is very obsessed. Notre Dame and pretty much this whole movie is very, very white. But I don't think that's 
really much of a lie. In 1970s, Notre Dame is probably yeah. extremely white, and it probably is now for the most part, too. I did not find it endearing. But it was based on a true story, right? Yeah, so it is. And the guy's name was really Rudy? So his name is Dennis, but he goes by Rudy because his last name okay. is... Because I was yeah. thinking maybe it's just supposed to be like this sly play on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like where the other reindeer wouldn't let him play in the games, right? <laughs> This is literally what happens. This whole guy's life is the same as Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So he's very persistent. He walks onto the football team and gets a spot just because he's he's got the hustle. He's got the heart, even though he's really small and not athletic at all. And he, oh, he's making us look bad because he's trying so hard. And it's Sean Assen. It's yes. Sam from it's Samwise from uh, Lord, Lord of the, the Rings. Rings. Yeah. So when he starts working at the steel mill, I was like, oh, the fires of Mordor. <laughs> of course you did. So he wants to get on the field. He wants to dress. He's a walk-on. He's not dressing, but he wants to for this last game. But the, for the last season, they switch coaches. Yeah. Legendary or Procedure steps down. The guy Dan Devine Big- comes in from Green Bay. The pitcher from Major League. The pitcher from Major League, yes. <laughs> it took me about 20 minutes to figure out who it was. I, was, I had to pause the film and look it up because it was driving me insane. I was like, yeah, that's the guy. He gets on the field because all these seniors come in and lay their jerseys on Dan Devine's desk. It's the second time I got choked up. I want Rudy to dress in my place, coach. He deserves it. Don't be ridiculous. You're an All-American and our captain. Act like it. I believe I am. Gets on the field for the last play. Makes a sack. They carry him off the field. Everyone was chanting, Rudy, Rudy. I tell you, it's just occurred to me what the student body has been chanting for the last two or three minutes. It's the name Rudy. It's made to seem like that's why Dan Devine put him in the game. He's carried off the field. The movie ends. I did not cry. Yeah, well, it was... Eventually, I did. I was kind of rooting against him for a little bit just because it was so obnoxious. Now, when he got the acceptance letter, I was like... Oh, yeah, he got in. That was the first point that where I got real choked up was when he brought it to show his dad. Ah. And then even after he leaves, and then they just linger on the dad, and the dad's trying to put it back in the envelope. That was like, that's a okay. very specific shot. And meant this dad actually cares about Rudy because the dad comes off as All right. not being like that. Hey, guys. My son's going to Notre Dame. And I might seem a little crass with how cynical I am of this whole story. <laughs> and it's viewed as one of the more inspirational stories, and it is based on a true story. But let's... Now do our requisite fact-checking of a based-on-a-true-story movie. The real Rudy himself says this movie is 92% true. All right. So the Jersey scene didn't happen. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. That's why I cried, because it's good Hollywood make them Dan Devine agreed to be kind of like, you know, the hard guy, because every movie needs that yeah. person. And he wasn't that villainous. He Not was, at he was all. well within the boundaries he, of what you expect from and a head, he decided head coach. Days before the game that Rudy was going to dress. Yeah, there you go. And the chanting didn't happen like that. He was really kind of upset how villainous he was portrayed. Quote, <laughs> the jersey scene is unforgivable. It's a lie and wow. untrue. I didn't think it was that bad. The groundskeeper is not a real character. It's a composite. Oh, no. yeah. That's uh, that's a trope that doesn't really hold up anymore is like, quote, unquote, the magical black man that is just like <laughs> it, has all the wisdom yeah. for the young guy in trouble or whatever. So he's a composite of those people that believed in him. The older brother, Frank, is a composite of everyone who didn't believe uh, one major point they left out is that Rudy actually served in the Navy oh. in real life. So he would have had his tuition covered under the GI Bill. Oh, I which see. Which yeah. takes out a major conflict point of right. how can he make all the, make the money to go to school and still do get his grades? Yeah. So <laughs> that's why that whole grounds crew thing is 
You know, none of that is true. Also, the groundskeeper is like, if you dress, I'll show up at the game, and he does. And then the big play happens, and they hoist up Rudy on, and Rudy's still on the field, being everyone celebrating, and he just turns around and walks away. It's like, why would, why wouldn't you wait like two more minutes just until see how that plays at least out? The teams are off the field. It was so. It's like, that's such a movie thing, you know? Yeah, it wasn't actually their last game of the season that year. He was carried off the field. That part did happen. Uh, People chanted Rudy after the fact. It was like a small section of the crowd, apparently. And uh, so they did have two road games, but these players don't dress for the road games. Uh, I totally miss Vince Vaughn, by the way. I missed that. that, I missed that. That character was a young Vince Vaughn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the credits. I'm like, wait, what? Vincent Vaughn? Yeah. Is that, is that Vince Vaughn? It was Vince Vaughn. And, of course, Vaughn? his buddy John Favreau was in there. Yeah, I, who we saw in the replacements. Yeah, so that's two. We got Chelsea Ross, the pitcher from Major League. Favreau from the Connections from previous movies we've See, watched. See, and there's one staring you in the face and you don't get it. Ned Beatty, his dad, oh? was the warden on He Got Game. Oh. Yeah. Dang. Ned Beatty is, will sign up for any sports movie. He's still alive. <laughs> is he really? I think so. All right. You know, the message of this movie was never, ever, ever give up despite all the obstacles that could possibly be in your way and everybody that's telling you no. Yeah, which is fine for a sports movie and worked out well for Rudy, but in real life, 80% of the time, it's like you got to cut bait at some, you know what I mean? You're wasting your whole life if that's all you're doing. This is a fine movie. I probably didn't like it as much as a lot of people did. No, I I find it. I was just, again, I was kind of rolling my eyes at just how obsessive. A little bit overrated. He yeah, was, it was just a bit much. about Notre Dame. It's like, yeah. cool, dude. You got a fetish. I get it, <laughs> but it's a little much. So, especially since, like guys, like going back to the beginning, where the family has no actual history at that college. Like his buddy there was like my dad. You know, was a big deal here. If he had like his grandpa or his dad or even an uncle had been like a had played football for him, then I could see Rudy's obsession with it. But just as a just a fan, otherwise, it's I don't know. That's just me, I guess. So what's our rating? Um, what out of five? I will give this three and a half slow claps for Rudy out of five when he comes back to practice. He got no punishment for being late and quitting. Everyone's no, like, yeah, just... welcome back. Well, the I coach up what... in the tower is like, what's going on down there? Because yeah, that's Dan Devine's like, oh, this guy. <laughs> All right, what's mine going to be? I will go with 6.8 rejection letters out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> You know what we have now? We have Resby Coots on the line calling us in from Gimli. How is Gimli treating it tonight, Resby? Uh, there's been quite a good party at the opening banquet for the, uh, for the Scotties. Uh, so let's go to the uh, the Hall of Fame here, the yeah. inductees. First of all, the idea to open up an Olympic wing of the Curling Hall of Fame, is that just because the Olympics are such a big part of the curling industry now? Well, it is, yeah, and you know, and, and uh, it's uh, a bit uh, glamorous for you, for you to play an Olympic wing. I like the sound of it, but um, you know, we've had uh, Manitoba's had a remarkable Olympic success record over the last two Olympics, right? With, uh, with Jennifer Jones' team winning the gold in uh, in Sochi uh, in '14, and and Dennis Thiessen, uh, a member of the Paralympic uh, gold medal team, the same year, and now, of course, uh, this year with with Caitlin Laws winning. Uh, uh, the first ever mixed doubles and being uh, uh, the first woman to win two gold medals in curling at the Olympics and so on. Uh, but the fact is that the world of curling is different than it was uh, even a decade ago. But for sure, uh, you know, our, our Hall of Fame started in uh, 30 years ago, and, and the standards of that time are different than they are now. Um, the, the simple fact is that, that teams 
now form up uh, with players from uh, from uh, different provinces, and and especially for the Olympics, where it's entirely possible for for four people from four different jurisdictions to curl together uh, to aim to go to the Olympics, citizenship being the key rather than residence in a province. So, um, so we, we said to ourselves, going forward, uh, there's more and more likelihood of that kind of thing happening, of a, of a Manitoba resident uh, playing with a team outside the province and, and uh, going to the Olympics. So we, we, uh, we added a standard to our, uh, to our system that said a Manitoban uh, who uh, goes to the Olympics uh, will automatically be considered for induction, and then, uh, you know, in that year, rather than waiting for 40 years or whatever, and and um, uh, it'll depend upon uh, you know how they perform, whether they actually are inducted, but it's for sure they would be considered for induction. Of course, uh, some of the other names inducted: uh, Rob Meekin, who is a front ender for Kerry Burtnick and Jeff Stoughton, really part of the the legacy of those Manitoba men's teams that did so well over the course of almost two decades. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rob was, uh, you know, I mean, often, uh, you know, as a, as a career uh, lead, you know, always uh, bothered me that uh, what little attention our team got, uh, the skip was the guy who got the attention, and and Rob was was an elite front ender, I think is the way you would put it. And a uh, member of Terry Burtnick's world champion team in 95, uh, they won the gold medal in the world in Brandon, in fact. Uh, but he was also uh, on Jeff Stoughton's uh, mixed teams in the in the late 1980s. And uh, uh, so uh, we were you know, delighted to honor a guy, uh, a front ender, uh, but an elite curler. And two uh, builders, you have Gary DeBlonde and uh, Isla Hagberg. What do they mean to curling in this province? Well, you know, uh, they're uh, the heart of the heart of the sport uh, at the club level and at the provincial association level, and then even up to the Canadian association level is is volunteerism. We have we have tremendously competent staff people uh, in our associations, and and in some clubs, in other clubs, they, it's all volunteer. But we uh, we thrive as a sport because of volunteers. Isla Hagberg. Uh, going back uh, a couple of decades, I uh, was very involved with the Manitoba Ladies Curling Association um, and, uh, and in fact, represented Manitoba in meetings at the Canadian level when, uh, when the Canadian men's and the Canadian Ladies Associations amalgamated. Uh, the Canadian amalgamation happened uh, uh, half a dozen years before the two associations amalgamated here in Manitoba. So, so uh, among many other things, but that's, uh, that's kind of a notable aspect of of Isla's uh, volunteer career uh, 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 from that time frame. Gary DeBlon, uh, actually inducted as a curler builder, uh, um, went to the Briar a couple of times, lost the final, uh, uh, like curling with his brother Claire, and then uh, uh, he went to the um, uh, Canadian Seniors, lost the final, curling with his brother Claire. But going back to the 60s, uh, Gary DeBlon was uh, part of the first uh, powerhouse mixed team, you might say, when mixed curling became a Canadian championship event, uh, a Manitoba team uh, skipped by Ernie Bushy won the first four Manitoba titles. Uh, Gary DeBlonde was the second on all four of those teams, and, and they went on to win two Canadian titles. So so as a curler, uh, tremendously successful. As a builder, uh, he was involved in the development of the Curl Canada instructional program. He was an instructor, he was a coordinator, uh, and he was actually involved with the trial Olympic program in, in 88 uh, at Calgary when uh, when we were uh, a trial sport, and he was the Olympic coach and, and manager of the program. So a deserving curler builder recognition there. 
And then the team category, the Pizarco and Fallis National Junior Women's Championship ranks also being inducted. Yeah, interesting coincidence. And, and uh, hadn't thought of it until this morning when we actually made the announcement. But there are two sets of twins, uh, very capable, uh, very capable as, as women curlers and even into their senior years. But, but the specific recognition is for uh, a 1974 Canadian Junior Women's Champion team skipped by Chris Pizarco. Uh, no one now is Chris Moore, uh, and um, uh, the 81 Canadian Junior Champion team uh, skipped by Karen Hollis. And uh, the the Hall of Fame's uh, standard of excellence is based on uh, winning at the highest possible level, I guess is the way you'd put it. And and there were no Junior Women's World Championships until 1988. So so these two teams. Had there been women's worlds uh, and had they advanced, we anticipate they might have won. But but if they had not, uh, you know, we're not sure what their status would be. But but because the Canadian Championship was the highest possible level, uh, these two teams uh, both won uh, at the Canadian Junior Championship level. Uh, uh, the Pizarro team won with a record of nine and one. Uh, the Fallis team won with a record of eight and two. In fact, had to win a playoff game. Uh, uh, so finished nine and two, they defeated Ontario in a playoff. So uh, achieved at the highest possible level in their era of competition. Resby, I'm glad we were able to connect. Uh, have fun in Gimli. I'll see you up there Sunday. I'll be there for the final, maybe the semifinal, and uh, enjoy the week. Good, uh, good to have a visit with you. Uh, you bet. Thanks very much. Check out the CJOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 p.m. with Christian O'Mell and the Sports Show Podcast. Not available on iTunes, not available on Google Podcasts, not available anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Yes.